Right, good evening, everybody. I've entitled my part tonight, Killing Uriah, the Self-Centered Nature of Choice. And we are going to be looking in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, if you want to find that in your Bibles. But what I hope to do is frame our discussion with a big picture look at the idea of choice and give an overarching perspective on the idea of human choice and how sinful and selfish and self-serving it often is. I've got a huge amount of confidence in Matthew and Dennis and their ability to drill down into the center of the abortion debate and draw many helpful things for us to consider. So what I want to do is really set the stage with more of a global uh, sense of this issue of choice and show how it is self-serving and self-centered. And you could say this for believers, our choices under God that we, that we are intending to be Christ-honoring are often wonderful choices. Sometimes we miss it, but they're often very wonderful choices. But outside of that context, outside of that context of uh, making choices in Christ under God, they are often self-centered and wicked. And I don't think you need me to tell you that. You already know. Um, you you know it to be true, but I want us to take a step back as we enter this topic of abortion and realize how sinful our choices are. Because I think that's going to help us to do two things. Number one, live repentantly, and number two, compassionately come towards others with redemptive purposes and the mercy and grace of God. God is the judge, and we should weep over abortion. We should weep over it, and we should mercifully interact in any context in which life is devalued. And there are many contexts that life is devalued. Now, one of the reasons we, we created GBI was to challenge ourselves and, and others to think deeply on truth and how it relates to where we live. So tonight, we're coming to this I mean, one of the most polarizing topics imaginable, right? Abortion generates anger and hatred and disdain on both sides of the debate. Very unfriendly conversations, oppositional, contentious. And like most things that take on a life of its own, abortion, which is aborting or ending or terminating a life, is often seen in a way that further clouds the issue rather than shedding light on the issue. So, you know, a lot of terms, uh, pro-life, pro-choice, right? Those long ago became culturally loaded terms. Pro-choice, pro-life, anti-choice, anti-life. We are told it is about choice, which it is. It is a choice to end life or to sustain it and nurture it. So I want you to take a step back with me gain a little perspective on this, hopefully, narrowly ask the question, what is choice? You know, just what is choice? We make a lot of choices in every day. What is choice? It is our freedom to choose one course of action over another. It's choice. It's an act of selecting or making a decision when faced with two or more possibilities. For example, the choice between good and evil, okay? We do things because we want to do them. People can say, well, I was forced, or I was coerced, or I had no other option, but that is rarely the case when it comes to our choices. We do what we want to do. 
Joshua famously told the people of Israel that they had a choice. In Joshua 24, 15, choose you this day whom you will serve. Are you going to serve the one true God or are you going to serve false gods? So I'm going to frame my argument tonight uh, for the self-centered nature of human choice around the story of David and Bathsheba and Nathan and God. And you find it in 2 Samuel 11. I want to go through it a bit and explain some of these verses a bit, and then I am going to, um, going to basically ask the question, why is choice such a self-centered topic for us, and give you seven reasons why. But first, let's look at 2 Samuel 11, beginning at verse 1. So it starts off like this. Now, by the way, this, this story is one of the most sinister stories in the Bible. It, it is one of the most sinister stories in the Bible because of, of, of what David chooses. Again and again, actually, several different choices. So it's, it starts in verse 1, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. So usually he would be going there. He doesn't. He stays home. He sends Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravage the Ammonites and besiege Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. So there's his first error, first bad choice. Verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, flat roof, patio-type thing on the roof. He saw, there's a key here, he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Now, I'm not going to get into all the details of why she was bathing out in the open and why he could see her from there and all sorts of motives and everything. We're going to focus on David here. He saw from the roof a woman bathing. And in verse 3 says he sent. So he saw her, then he sent and inquired about the woman. And, and one said, is, this, this is, not, is, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So she's a married woman. And it says in verse 4, David sent messengers and took her. So he saw her, he sent for her, and then he took her. And they had sexual relations, and, and she becomes pregnant. Okay, so already you've got adultery. And verse 6 says, David sent word to Joab. Now, here he's going to hatch a plan that even gets more sinister. He's going to eliminate the inconvenient person in the story. That's what he's going to do. So verse 6, David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Now where is Uriah the Hittite? He is in the battle. So Joab sends Uriah to David. Basically, Uriah gets sent home. Okay? So David is, is asking, you know, how things are going, how the war is going. And David says to Uriah, go down to your house. But verse 9 tells us Uriah slept at the door with the servants, didn't go into his house. They told David, Uriah didn't go down to his house. And David says, Uriah, you, you, you come from a journey. How come you didn't go to your house? He wants him to go be with his wife. And Uriah says to David, here's Uriah, uh, you know, in the right, he says, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I go down to my house to eat and drink and be with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So Uriah wants to do something uh, virtuous, and David has this sinister plan. And so David sends a letter with Uriah back to Joab. You look at verse 14, 
And the plan gets even more sinister. He writes a letter and basically says, put Uriah in the worst part of the battle in front and then desert him. Leave him all alone so that he dies. He may be struck down and die. That's in the letter. And Uriah is taking the letter. Crazy, right? And so this is what happens. The same thing happens. That what David asked for happens and he gets word Uriah is dead. Next thing you see, verse 27. And when the morning was over, oh, by the way, verse 26, the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. She lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, verse 27, David sent and brought her into his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Understatement, right? He displeased the Lord. Now you go into chapter 12 and God is sending Nathan to rebuke David for his sin. And he tells them a story, a bit of a parable. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb. So that's Uriah, the poor man, and the ewe lamb would be Bathsheba, which he had bought. And he brought it up and grew with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And there came a traveler to the rich man. He was unwilling to take one of his own flock and herd to prepare for the guest who came. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And David's anger, verse 5, burned greatly against the man. And here's what he said to Nathan. As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He had no pity. Do you notice that? He says, he had no pity. You know, David had no pity on Uriah. David had really no pity on Bathsheba. In verse 7, Nathan says to David, you are the man. And then God's indictment on him. You've despised the word of the Lord. You did what was evil. You struck down Uriah the Hittite. You've taken his wife to be your wife. You've killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. So therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. You've despised me. You've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. I'm going to rise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. He shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. All this stuff happens, by the way. Look into David's life and all this stuff happens. For you did it in secret, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. In verse 13, David confesses his sins. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. There is confession, there is repentance, and there is forgiveness. And then he says in verse 14, nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. So proves the point once again as if we needed any more proof than looking at ourselves in the mirror every day. Our choices are often sinfully self-centered and lead to our ruin, but God's choices are always sovereignly Christ-centered and lead to his glory. David, Cain, Moses, Judas, uh, take your pick, all of them sinners, some redeemed, some doomed for destruction, but all of them sinful and all of them flawed and making fatally sinful choices. In fact, every one of them a murderer, explicitly or complicitly guilty in the deaths of other innocent parties. 
So David kills Uriah, one of the early examples of mankind putting out of sight what's inconvenient for their plans. What's inconvenient. So the question, why is choice such a self-centered topic for us? Seven things. There's room in your notes to write, to write these down. Number one, the reason why is because, first of all, we are not God. We're not God. God's purposes are perfect. Uh, the purposes of the Almighty are perfect. The Almighty has his own purposes. He is the author of life. He's the sustainer of life. And who are we to say if someone should live or die? Uh, Charles Hodge, uh, in his systematic theology, said of this, of God's providence, it's an infinitely wise, good, and powerful God is everywhere present, controlling all events, great and small, necessary and free, in a way perfectly consistent with his own infinite excellence. We, we don't just subscribe to fatalism, by the way, which says whatever happens is bound to happen. That denies the involvement of God in the affairs of human history. The key distinction between fatalism and providence is the recognition of the personality of God. That God is who he says he is. And we've got to have a scriptural view of God. And if we have a scriptural view of God, we realize we're not God. Now, Kim Kuo wrote an article for Christianity Today on September 15th of this year, and it was about assisted suicide, which is another one of the hot topics right now. Assisted suicide and real death with dignity is, is the title of the article. What she said was, choosing suicide at any point is the same sin Adam and Eve committed in the garden, the pride of wanting to be God, not simply to serve him. She also says, our society is quickly becoming comfortable with the notion of death on demand rather than life in all its complexity. You see, we, we want to choose often the path of least resistance. We want to choose the convenient Option to get something inconvenient out of the way. So she says about seven out of ten Americans self-identify as Christians. It's an interesting statistic. And according to a 2015 Gallup poll, 69% of Americans say doctors should be legally allowed to end a patient's life if the patient wants it. That means that at least 40% of self-identified Christians believe that people should be able to control the circumstances of their deaths. Much like arguments that have fueled the abortion and gay marriage movements, we have accepted that each individual has full unfettered rights to their own bodies, their own lives, their own loves, and now to their own deaths. We have to remind ourselves we're not God. We're not God. Number two, we are not good. We're not good. Jesus said only God is good. And sin, by the way, is always a moral issue. It is always a moral issue. If someone rejects Christ, it's not on intellectual grounds. They might say it is, but it is always a moral issue. So we choose to engage in evil. But not simply evil, directed evil. That's what David did. David chose to engage in directed evil, the intent to harm other people, and that is called malice. So he wasn't just engaging in evil in general, he was engaging in malice, which is directed evil, intending to harm other people. So whether it's abortion or murder of, of someone walking down the street, 
It's, it's, it's malice. Now, David wanted to undermine Uriah's life with extreme malice. We're not good. And by the way, as Matthew said, we're going to keep saying that abortion is not a political issue. It's a moral issue. It's a theological issue. So we're not God and we're not good. The third reason is because we cannot trust ourselves. We put too much stock in our own, in our own autonomy, supposedly, in our, in our own ideas. We tell ourselves lies and we talk ourselves into them. Now, depending upon your wiring, you're either going to be more or less prone to self-deception, but we are all prone to self-deceive. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is very clear. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will direct your paths. But we trust in our own hearts. And we tell ourselves all sorts of things all day long, actually. You think about it. You go, well, I would never do that. Well, think about all the things you do tell yourself, and then you do choose because of the things you tell yourself. Only God's wisdom can sustain us. We cannot trust ourselves Abraham Lincoln once said this regarding the Bible. In regard to this great book, I have but to say this. It is the best gift God has given to man. All the good the Savior gave the world was communicated through this book. If we believe that, we've got to not trust ourselves. Seriously, don't trust yourself. You can't be trusted. That's number three. Number four is we, we can't be trusted by other people. If we can't trust ourselves, other people can't trust us either. Now, I know that's counterintuitive, but you can't trust yourself because you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna go astray, but you're also going to lead other people with you. If you believe all the things that your mind thinks, then you're going to lead yourself astray and lead others too. You can't be trusted. We are to live our lives in such a way as to not be a stumbling block to weaker members of the community. Romans 14, don't cause a brother to stumble. But when we usurp God's place, we become the ultimate stumbling block. So we shouldn't trust ourselves, and we need to acknowledge that we can't be trusted. Now, in this room, I'm looking around, and I see a lot of people that I trust. I see a lot of trustworthy people. But you are not ultimately trustworthy. God is. Does that make sense? So you can be a, a trustworthy person, but we're not going to put all of, our, all of our stock in Tony Verdesia, let's say. Whatever Tony says goes, you know, then, then, then what? We're acting like he's God, right? Okay, so you, you, you can't be trusted. And number five, our motives are not trustworthy. Our, our, we do things for the wrong reasons. And the moral implications of choices that we make cannot be underestimated. We make little choices all day long, and the moral implications of many of those choices cannot be Underestimated. Just think of the idea of giving to, to people who are needy. Give to him that is needy is the Christian rule of charity and love. Take from him that is needy is the rule of slavery. So what Nathan was doing when God came to Nathan, when God came and told him to talk to David about this, is that, that God was showing David through Nathan the slavery of his sin. The slavery of his sin. His motives weren't trustworthy. We do not do things for altruistic reasons. Think about it. The best things you do, think about how they get intermixed with selfish motives. I'm going to do something really good, and, and then I'm going to um, get some credit for it. 
God's going to be pleased with me, and I get some credit for it, and people are going to think I'm a good guy. 1 Corinthians uh, 13, 4 through 6 says, Love is patient and kind, not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Rejoices in the truth. That's the love of God. But our motives don't always rejoice in the truth. Our motives are not trustworthy. You can't use those as your, as your true north you know, compass. All right, number six. Number six is we are not fully free. We are not fully free. Self-centered nature of choice. Me-first mentality. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Unalienable rights. And we take it for granted that we get to choose. We, we, we will scream and, and yell that we get to choose. It's a fairly American way of thinking, is not? Thoroughly unbiblical. You grow up in America, and it is ingrained into your DNA. You fight for your rights. And our power to choose and our supposed autonomy becomes an idol. We are told from our earliest days, have it your way. Don't let anyone tell you what to do. What is right for you is right for you. Uh, None of those are biblical ideas. And we see it everywhere around us. In the air we breathe, in the water we drink. Our daily lives, me first, and it comes into our community involvement and our church interactions. You think about our relationship with God. A lot of people will scream for free will, decry the doctrines of election and sovereign grace, and all the while, at the very same time, having thousands of examples of man's will that's supposedly free run amok. Thousands of examples. And we like to talk about free will. Free choices. Choices made according to our free will. Free will with respect to God. If you're talking about God's will, that God, all the things that God has decided to will, with respect to us, it's the ability to make willing choices. Now, we would all agree that man, man has free will. The question is, how free is his will? Jonathan Edwards, in his work, The Freedom of the Will, defines the will as that by which the mind chooses. You, you make a decision in your mind. R.C. Sproul, in his book, uh, Essential Truths of the Christian Faith, uh, chapter 63, Free Will, he, he points out six, six things Number one, every choice we make is for a reason. Every choice you make is a reason for it. Number two, we always choose according to our strongest inclination at the moment of choice. So whatever you really, really want at the moment of choice, like you're going through the drive-thru window, and what do you want to eat? Taco, burrito, burger, whatever you want, whatever your strongest inclination is, that's what you choose. And the will is the choosing faculty. So every choice you make is for a reason. We always choose according to our strongest inclinations at the moment of choice, and the will is the choosing faculty. Four, fallen human beings have free will but lack liberty. We have natural freedom but not moral freedom. We don't have freedom to choose good outside of Christ. And freedom, number five, is self-determination. And number six, in regeneration, God changes the disposition of your heart and plants a desire for himself within you. So when you talk about free will, you have to say, how, how free is the will? What is it free to choose? John 8 says, you'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. You know, only God can, can give us to see what is right. 
Otherwise, we will go wrong. Without truth, we're bound to go astray. So we need God to be the determiner. You know, we need God to be the determiner in salvation and in human history, and we need to surrender to his will because we are not fully free. And the last thing, number seven, we are prone, just like David, to justify and cover up and deny our sin. That's the nature. That's what Adam and Eve did. That's what we do. That's what David did here. He, you know, he had to get, he had, he was blinded by his sin. And, and he wouldn't listen to reason. That's like us. We get blinded by our sin. We won't listen to reason. It wasn't until God sent Nathan that David finally unraveled and, and basically spilled the beans that everyone else already knew. God sent a rebuke through Nathan. What would happen if every professing believer would live with this question before them all the time? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Or why am I planning to do what I'm planning to do? Is it for the glory of God and the gospel, or is it for me? What if we lived with that question before us all the time? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I planning to do what I'm planning to do? Is it for the glory of God in the gospel, or is it for me? And similarly, how does the gospel truth speak to this issue, and how might I change my course to align with it for the greater glory of God? How does the gospel speak to this issue, and how might I change my course to align with it to the greater glory of God? Apply that to every choice. Lastly, is there a better way? Yes, glorify God through lives transformed by the gospel. Our only hope is Jesus, gospel transformation. But gospel transformation doesn't make choices for you. It, it basically enables, it unlocks the option. It enables you to make God-honoring choices. There's the possibility now that previously wasn't an option outside of Christ. Psalm 51 was written by David when Nathan the prophet went to him. The note in, in my Bible says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And it's so, every, I think every time I've ever heard this, every time I've ever heard this psalm read or preached, it's always, hey, this is the psalm that David read after he sinned with Bathsheba. And, and, and in some way, it's very easy to narrow the focus so much and say, yeah, David committed adultery, and he hurt Bathsheba and himself, and he sinned against God, and there's just three parties in this one. Oh, that's not true. That's not true. There was an innocent child. There was a husband that was doing the right thing. There was Nathan the prophet. There were all the people in David's household. There were all the people that he was leading. This, this sin of David's affected so many people, and the, the ripples just went out. But here's what you've got to say, and here's what you've got to conclude. There is sin. There is, there is, there is sin in the human heart. 
When we confess our sins, there is forgiveness in Christ. For all who sinned and confess their sin and throw themselves upon the mercy of God in Christ, there is forgiveness. I think one of the things we want to say over and over again tonight, too, is that we need to engage the culture one relationship at a time with the gospel. And that we should not go around pointing our fingers at everybody and saying how wrong everyone else is. We should be going towards people with love and mercy and compassion and with the gospel. So here's what David wrote. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. And he's not... He's not ignoring all the people he hurt. But what he's saying is, God, you are sovereign. You are ultimate. I sinned against you, which means he also sinned against all those other people. I've done what is evil in your sight. You are justified in your words, blameless in your judgment. I was brought forth in iniquity. Now he's not excusing his choices. I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness because now he's in the depths of despair. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. This is the prayer of the, of the penitent. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. My mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifice of God or a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. All right, let's pray, and then we're gonna take a break. Lord God, I thank you that the sacrifices that please you are a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart. And so Lord, I pray as we go into the rest of this evening that you would, would, would tenderize our hearts. Your, our hearts are tender already because everyone who's here has a tender heart for, for the unborn and for life. Lord, tenderize our hearts towards those who are, who are caught in deception, those who are perpetuating lies. And Lord God, Give us, give us redemptive interaction with anyone we come in contact regarding this topic so that we might glorify you in the choices we make. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.